when I mean normally I would wouldn't necessarily uh, you know have gotten over the sort of narcissistic love of reading my own books, but the, the this is actually the new printing which uh, fixed some mis mistakes from the original printing and then added some new information. So when I saw this yesterday, I usually go whenever someone asks me to sign their book, I go and I kind of fix this mistake here and there. But then I looked and it's already fixed. I was so happy. But then I thought also since I'm here in England, I would read. The part I read, wrote about my mother in the introduction and the acknowledgments because she was a real lover of England and she did her PhD in Cambridge and she loved traveling around here. And uh, so I thought it would be nice to read what I wrote about her. I, I, this is, I wrote this in 2010. I dedicate this book to my mother, Dr. Ellen Brown, because she was my first and greatest teacher. She died suddenly in June 2010 in Addis Ababa, having seen this dedication. And as this book goes to press, I take this opportunity to offer what encomium I can. My mother was, all, above all, a great scholar. She was an anthropologist committed to understanding the true nature of human society, a compelling writer, a woman of piercing intellect, an encyclopedic knowledge, a clever critic, and the toughest and most resourceful per person I have ever encountered. She spent a career traveling alone through the boiling African Sahel, and overcame excruciating illnesses, all while treating those around her with compassion. She was an effulgently and endlessly loving mother, a loyal friend, a consummate chef, and a moral exemplar to all those who knew her. She was a generous soul who always sought to do good and to improve the lives of others. If I have accomplished anything in this book, the credit is hers. I do not think that uh, her children, or those who knew her, will ever be able to express fully how much they loved her and how proud they are of her. And she will remain the best and wisest person I've ever known. And if you re recognize that last line is from, anybody know? Now you have no excuse because you watched the, the Guy Ritchie movie. No. <laughs> it's the last line from... Uh, Final problem of Sherlock Holmes. And Dr. Watson writes that. So she was, uh, I mentioned this in my last talk, we, were, we always used to watch uh, the Granada television Sherlock Holmes shows together and with. It's funny, I wrote that like, you know, almost 10 years ago. I still can't read it without being affected. So anyway, someone gets this uh, copy of the book. I'll put here, I guess. Okay, so uh, Mansoor asked me to talk about, um, what's Mansoor asked me or someone else? Well, you guys are brothers. Yes. I, I'm awesome. I know you're awesome, but uh, <laughs> what's your name? What's your name? That's my name, awesome. No, you don't get the joke. That was a funny joke. <laughs> uh, so you never heard this joke, you know, the, the Prime Minister of Norway, Quisling? He was during World War II, his name was Quisling. Do you know what a quizzling? Quizzling is like a, now it means uh, like someone who's like weak and a, a sellout. So he was called quizzling, that became the used for that word because he like gave in to Hitler. And it, it became used so quickly that when quizzling actually met Hitler, he said, hi, I'm quizzling. And Hitler said, I know, but what's your name? <laughs> so, that's, uh, no, I'm just showing. So they, Awesome and his brother asked me to talk about Islamic law, Sharia in the modern world. And that's actually a, it's a tough topic to talk about because you, 
kind of talk about the Sharia first, and then you have to talk about the modern world, and you have to talk about what happens when these two things come together. So uh, I thought, you know, I, I, I thought maybe I actually had a presentation that talked about this before, and, um, and I remembered suddenly I actually have these slides, so I can use these slides to help out. Uh, so it's kind of talking about the, um, I'll, I'll introduce you to some concepts, and it, some of you may know this stuff already, maybe you don't, but this is what they asked me to talk about, so I'm going to do my best. So the, uh, I think one of the, and some of you, were some of you in Birmingham today or not? You were, because you were, <laughs> you were with me. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so some of this is a bit of a repeat, but uh, most of you weren't there, so it's not a big deal. Um, well, first of all, uh, I'll say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim before I start. So the first concept that's really important to keep in mind, it's very important in Islamic law in general, but certainly as you get into a question of Islamic law in the modern world, uh, is the notion of hukuk uh, Allah and hukuk al-ibad. This, this is a, a, a dichotomy that is not, it's not present in the Quran, it's not present uh, explicitly in the Sunnah of the Prophet, but it's articulated, you know, you, you can first find it articulated in the, essentially the late 700s, the very early 800s, uh, with scholars like Ibrahim uh, uh, al-Muzani, who died um, 264 Hijri, it's about in the 870s of the common era. He was one of the students, the close students of Imam al-Shafi'i. He's one of the, and he writes a book called the Mukhtasar, that is an abridgment of a Shafi's um, Shafi's mother book. And his Mukhtasar becomes like the, the essentially the, the mihwar, the, the, the pivot for all later books of the Shafi madhab. It's like the, kind of the touchstone of the Shafi madhab. So uh, that's one of the earliest places you find this concept. And it's hukuk uh, Allah, or the rights of God, um, the rights of God, for, first and foremost, are um, uh, to be worshipped alone. I'm actually going to the bottom of the slide first, but uh, this and and also uh, so this, those things that you that Muslims do that are acts of worship to God ex explicitly, these are fulfilling the rights of God. So things like prayer, fasting, and then also something that actually has to do sometimes with your interaction with other people, but also with your uh, own shortcomings, like let's say if you intentionally break your fast, you have to do kafara. If uh, you uh, break an oath, some kinds of oath, you have to do kafara. If you accidentally kill somebody, which I hope doesn't happen, uh, not only do you have to pay that, or your, not only does your family have to pay that person's family uh, the dia, their compensation payment, but you also have to do kafara as well, uh, whether it's freeing a slave or feeding um, uh, 60 poor people are fasting for two months um, consecutively. And uh, also uh, hudud. So we talked about this in my last lecture. So hudud are certain offenses, certain crimes that are uh, particularly, they're seen as violating God's rights. They, they may, in fact, uh, in include more than that, but they're seen as particularly offensive and uh, insulting to God. And these are the crimes, again, this is, not a, this is not a category that is delineated in the Quran and the Sunnah. The Prophet, Salam, talks about certain things being hudud crimes, but he, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you a list of the hudud crimes, it's A, B, C, D. The, 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 basically, this is a list that is compiled by Muslim scholars in the wake of the Prophet's death, Salam. And um, so there's some disagreement between schools of law about exactly what the hudud crimes are. But generally what makes a crime a hud crime is that 
the one, the punishment is specified in the Quran or the Sunnah, and sometimes by companion opinions, but uh, also that it has, it's seen as a violation of the rights of God. And the ones that are agreed upon are zina, sadiqa. Sadiqa is certain kinds of very egregious theft. Not, you know, if Awesome took my um, phone, you know, while I was talking to someone else off this table, it would not be sadiqa because it would have to be in a secure location where I put it um, to be sadiqa. Uh, drinking khamar or intoxicants, a qadif, which is, a, you know, sexual slander, and hiraba. Hiraba is basically really kind of violent crime. You know, if you were to sort of go and mug people and kill them and take their money and stuff, that would be hiraba. And then another right of God is uh, ridda. Ridda is, you know, the crime of apostasy, of Muslims leaving uh, Islam. But, uh, and I've written on this, and uh, I know some people disagree with it, but I think this is just overwhelmingly the case. I think the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, not, and it's not some modern discovery. Um, I think this is very clearly the case in Islamic tradition as well, that uh, ridda is really a, a political crime or a social crime. So it's not about um, if, you know, Joe Muslim or Ahmed Muslim decides he doesn't believe anymore and he doesn't want to go praying and he wants to sit at home and make jokes about religion and stuff like that. No one really cares. But if you go out and you say, I'm publicly leaving Islam, Islam is a bad idea, you guys should all do it too, insult, 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 that would be ridda because you're going out and you're really like, you're threatening the social order of, of how Muslim society was understood, where, you know, religion was the, the organizing um, uh, structure of the society. Uh, and actually, the first person, I just recently discovered this, I mean, I discovered, I don't know, maybe someone else did, I, mean, I haven't seen anyone else discuss it, is the first person who came up with this understanding of really Ridda as being something that was premised on societies that were religiously structured was uh, Sayyid Amir Ali, the, he died in 1928, who's, he was a high court judge in Bengal, and then he came, he was actually on the Privy Council. The, he was like the only Muslim ever on the Privy Council, um, in, and he actually retired in England. I think he's buried somewhere in, in England. Um, he was a Shia Muslim from Bengal. Okay, and so the, the first part uh, that's, that's really important, uh, the right, is more important for our purposes, are the rights of God's servants. This is the hakuk al-ibad. Ibad means slaves. Uh, who's slaves? The slaves of God. Who are the slaves of God? They're human beings. Right? All human beings. So when you say, when the Quran talks about, لَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِذَلَامٍ لِلْعَبِيدِ Who are the abid that God is talking about? The abid are human beings. So the abid or ibadullah are human beings. Whether they're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, men, women, free, slave, right? They're all. So this is basically human rights. It's hukuk al-ibad means the rights of the slaves of God, means the rights of human beings. So, I said this before, sorry to repeat myself, but Muslims invented human rights, people. I'm not trying to do this thing where you talk about like how Muslims invented Tetris or some nonsense like that. No, Muslims, this is actually, the, in, as far as I know, and I've tried to read as widely as I could on this, this is really the first time that someone talks about humans having rights. Like, all human beings have certain rights because they're human beings. Muslims talk about this. They're the first people to articulate it. Um, where, the Quran doesn't say there are certain human rights. Um, the Prophet doesn't say there are certain human rights. These are actually abstracted uh, outward, abstracted out from the Quran, from the Sunnah of the Prophet, from the conduct of the early Muslim community by the generation of people like 
the, of the, the great scholars like Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, their students, their students, right? So they start to like draw out of all these details, abstract from them, literally pull out from them these general concepts. And at the same time, so the first ones they start coming up with in the, the late 700s, the early 800s of the Common Era is this notion that humans have a right to physical inviolability. This is in Arabic, it's Isma. So what's your name? Reina. That's a nice name. So I can't go up to Reina and like take this bottle of water and just throw it at her head or something like that because I've violated her physical inviolability. So that's, if I do that, then I have to compensate her for this injury. Um, similarly, she, she, humans have a right to property. So it, this is Reina's purse. Is that a purse? It looks like, a, I don't know. I'm not a guy, so I don't know what these things are. All I know is I don't, go, I don't touch them. I don't go inside them. So the, you know, uh, if I take that, then I violated her right to property. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if she were Muslim or Christian or Jewish or free or a slave or anything like that, she would have these, these rights. And third, she, essentially right to due process. The Muslims didn't talk about it in the language. They didn't use the phrase due process. But it's just clearly, it clearly came up in their discussion of the idea of bayina. Bayina means um, direct evidence. Bayina means direct evidence. And in fact... Uh, Omar bin Khattab, in his letter, he sends to Abu Musa al-Ashari, and this is found in the Adab al-Qadi of a famous 9th or 3rd Hijri century judge, al-Khassaf. He, he writes a letter to Abu Musa al-Ashari. He says, God has protected the rights of the believers with the bayina. The bayina. So what is the bayina? The bayina means if I want to make a claim and say, Reina owes me something, or Reina has to do something, or Reina did something wrong, Right? I have to have evidence for that. It's my job to have evidence. If I don't have evidence, Reina is innocent. All Reina says is, I swear to God, this is not true. And so the, the person making the claim has to provide evidence. And by the way, if you think this is obvious, it's not. It's not obvious at all. I mean, have you ever, you guys read you know, English history, correct? Does everyone remember trial by ordeal? And things like that. So trial by ordeal, this Norman and Anglo-Saxon tradition was... If I, if I accuse, what's your name with the green scarf? Sufyan. So if I accuse Sufyan of being a heretic or a witch or doing something or, or stealing something, he actually has to prove that he, he has to do, stick his hand in boiling water or walk across hot coals or do something to prove that he's innocent. This, I mean, this is a, so by the way, it seems obvious, but actually for lots, many, many centuries of human society and different civilizations, this was not obvious at all. It may be possible, I'm not sure about this, but I think it's a distinct possibility that the notion of presumption of innocence came into the Western European legal tradition through Islamic law. Because if you look at when it happens, it happens in the 1100s and 1200s into Roman law through the church. The same people who are like bringing in Islamic sciences and mathematics and geometry and philosophy and all that stuff, they didn't read any law books, they weren't influenced by Islamic law, so I think there's also a real possibility. But I don't know, that requires more research. Uh, okay, um, now at the same time as sort of jurists were abstracting these details from the Quran, the Sunnah, the different verses of the Quran, Hadiths, early Islamic practice, uh, in the uh, 900s and 1000s of the Common Era, so the 400s and, uh, 300s and 400s of the Islamic calendar, uh, other Muslims start thinking kind of who are more philosophically or theologically or theoretically inclined, people like uh, Abu Hassan al-Ashari or Imam al-Ghazali or, or Imam al-Sarakhsi in the Hanafi school, they start to 
kind of, instead of coming like a ground up from like scripture upward, they start coming kind of a theory downward approach to the notion of the rights of the slaves of God. And they, uh, first you see this with Imam al-Hadamein al-Juvaini, the Shafi scholar who died 1085 of the Common Era. He says that, you know, humans have a right to life, to property, and to um, basically family or to chastity, sort of like control of lineage. And he talks about these three. And then his student Al-Ghazali talks about life, proper, sorry, life, property, family, and then religion and also reason. So this is the things that the Sharia is here to protect. These are the rights we have. We have the rights to our physical inviolability, to property, to religion, to uh, family, to like our, our, our descendants, our children, to know what our, uh, to kind of like our parents' uh, uh, paternity and, and lineage. And also reason. So we actually have a right to have clear mind, to be able to use our reason. And this, by the way, you start seeing kind of a, a bit of a change here because I have a question. What in Islamic law, what laws do we have in Islam that protect our right to reason? Can anyone guess? No drinking. No drinking. So I might, I might really want to drink. As a genetic alcoholic, I do really want to drink, okay? But... I, uh, I can't, because I, I don't have a right to deprive myself of reason. Question, if, you're, if there's Christians living under Muslim rule, can Christians drink? Can they, can they brew wine and vodka and get blotto as long as they don't do it in the streets? Yes. So actually, now we're starting to see that the kind of, if we're thinking about human rights, that things are, it's, just stopped, it's not no, no longer really about all human beings, because some of these rights don't really apply to non-Muslims. Um, so, and another, the one, uh, Imam Sarakhsi also adds Ird. Ird is like honor or dignity. Uh, and again, this is, gets a little bit complicated because in the Islamic, in a Sharia tradition, not, not everybody actually has the same rights to dignity. So if you are a, uh, a free Muslim, you have more right to dignity than like a Muslim who's a slave. Or you have more right to dignity than, let's say, a Christian who's living in, under Muslim rule. Uh, and this just gets into uh, more complicated understandings. That's why I have honor in like a, in parentheses, because again, you're starting to sort of slip off from a, a plateau of human rights that all people have to more of like a thing where you have gradated levels of rights. Also, rights are created by contract. So if you, if, if, um, if uh, Sufyan and I have a contract, uh, we've now taken on obligations and agreements to one another that if we violate those obligations or agreements, then we've created liability. We've created a sense of a tortious action. Okay. Anybody have any, by the way, uh, oh, anybody have any questions about this? Why am I treating this like a class? Because I'm in a university. Okay, fine. You'll save the questions for the end. I, I have another uh, thing up here at the top I should mention first, which is a, a Roman law concept, which actually is sort of absorbed... Uh, like so many things from the Roman world into Western civilization overall, this notion of public law and private law. So this agreement that Sufyan and I had about, um, you know, however, you know, he's going to sell me his scarf and I'm, I'm going to pay him how much money for it. That's a private law agreement. So if I don't pay him the money or if he doesn't give me the scarf or they gives me a damaged scarf or something, this is a private law issue. So we have, it's an issue between our, our relationship with another and wrongs and rights that we have towards one another. Uh, if I have, if I, let's say, obey, disobey a traffic law or don't pay taxes, that's public law issue because that's between me and the government. 
That's between me and the government. Now, there is a bit of an overlap here, right? Because if I, um, instead of just having a scarf selling agreement with Sufyan, I decide, you know, I'm so upset at Sufyan, I'm going to go and, you know, bash him over the head with his telephone. Okay. Something else has happened. Some, I've also, it's not just that I've wronged Sufyan. So in Sharia law, just like in Roman law, just like in British law, um, we've, I've done him a wrong and I have to pay him for the, I've caused him damage to his body and I have to pay him for the damage I've done to him. But something else has happened. It's some, some like notion of public order has been violated and like, you know, uh, kind of the society's functioning has been violated. Now it's not just about me and his dispute over scarf sales. It's something more has happened. And so the government, this actually has a public element as well because the government has the duty to protect public order. And so this you see very clearly in the, the Sunnah of the Prophet, where, where the Prophet is, um, he's the one who resolves disputes, right? So disputes are resolved through him or through the judge, through the ruler. And uh, if, if you have some, if someone hurts someone from another tribe, they don't just go and have a vendetta against that tribe and hurt someone from that tribe. It has to be processed through the courts. And they say, okay, oh, you hurt this person? So, okay, you have to compensate him for this issue. So they're gonna, this notion of private wrongs, when it comes to serious things like injuries or murder or killing, is actually going to be controlled by the government. And not only that, but let's say, um, let's say Sufyan, he's from out of town. He's from like Cambridge. Blackburn. Are you from Cambridge? I studied. I was there for a bit. But, uh, How long? Three years. Well, that's pretty good. Okay, so uh, you, you're from, let's say you're from out of town. No one here, everyone here, no one here knows who you are. So if I, let's say, brutally murder you, God forbid, well, that's it. No one's, I, no wrong has been done, right? He has no family member to speak up for him. In this situation, also the judge or the prophet, or the ruler, right, will actually say, I'm the agent of the person who, I'm the wali of the person who has no wali. I will come and say, okay, who's, who did this? I'm going to demand uh, uh, payment. And by the way, um, if, if someone, let's say, brutally murders, God forbid him, right, I can, I can forgive uh, that person as the judge, so I don't have to execute them. But I, and where does the money go? It actually goes into the public treasury. So if, if you have to, so sorry, Sophia, I won't make you an example anymore. I hope nothing bad happens to you. <laughs> so these are, these are actually areas of similarity between Roman law, British law, and Islamic law. And it's, I think it's a similarity not because there's some genetic uh, relationship between the two, because it's actually kind of pretty common sense. If you think human beings, you know, we sort of relate to one another as individuals. Uh, we, have a, we, we think of this something called government, which sort of organizes our life at some level or the other, so we have some relationship to that. And then that, that thing that rules over us also has some interest in making sure that we don't act, that sometimes our relationships with one another are also going to have a public element. Everybody understand? Excellent. Oh, look, I accidentally just did all this. Um, okay, so the... Some, the, the, the notion of public law is oftentimes expressed through two things. One is like haq Allah, the rights of God, actually morph into something called haq amma. Haq amma means general or public right. What's are good examples of this? Taxation, foreign policy, how, Muslim, how non-Muslim minorities are treated. So in, in, under the Sharia, these are all decisions that are made by the government. They're all decisions made by the government. Another thing that's very interesting, freedom and slavery. 
So, uh, not that maybe some of you don't like talking about this. I think it's fascinating, and you can read this in my new book, Slavery and Islam, available where books are sold. That uh, you, the people, individuals don't have the right to enslave other people. Individual Muslims can't enslave other people. People are, in, in, in theory, in Islamic civilization, are under Sharia. They're enslaved when the Muslim state has a war against non-Muslims outside the abode of the Islam, abode of Islam. Some of, one of the things you can do with those captives is you can enslave them. That slavery, their slavery status is actually owned by the government because the, that's haq The government stands in for God. Why does, why does God own the slaves? Because only God has the right to make someone not free. Human beings are all born free. They're by nature free. They can only, God can take away that freedom. So the, their slave status is actually held by the government, sort of in, standing in for God. And, but okay, well, what happens if I own a slave? I don't actually own a slave. I own the right to, I, it's, like I'm, it's like a secondary market. So I basically own the user, using right of that slave. But now there's a kind of a contradiction, right? Because let's say if I have a slave and I say, you're free. Is a slave a, fr- a slave anymore? Now he's free. But how does that happen? Because I'm not the actual owner of that slave status. How can I have freedom? Because, very important principle, which goes back to Hadith of the Prophet, uh, God wants freedom. In Islamic law, the principle is, uh, the, the lawgiver, God, God and the prophet, the lawgiver, looks expectantly and desires freedom. So in this situation, the fact that, you know, it's actually kind of breaking the rules, but because God wants freedom, if I say you're free to my slave, so that's it, he's free. Even if I say it as a joke, even if I say it as yes. How is the government allowed to stand in the place of God? I mean, the, the, the government is allowed to stand in the place of God because the government is in charge of general rights. So, I mean, and think about this. Like, who, um, who has the right to kill another person? Like, do you, I mean, in theory, do you have the right to kill another person? Yeah, so you're in self-defense, right? But, like, let's say, who has the right to carry out HUD punishment? Who has the right to, th- you know, th- so there's a certain things that, uh, you know, we can't, we don't, humans uh, do not kill the life that God has made haram, right? That's the Quranic verse. So God has made life haram. You can't, t- we can't take life unless God allows situations in which God has taken life, in which people can take lives. And who's the, who's the agent who... Uh, supervises or allows that life, life to be taken is the, the government. So in this sense, I'm not doing some weird madkhali thing where I'm being like, you know, the government is in control of everything. But there's certain things in the Islamic tradition, this is very clear. Right? Do you understand? Does that answer your question? So essentially, government is uh, in the condition of war. Government is allowed to take... Can we leave I'm taking ownership of the situation. Now, I can do whatever I want. You, can, you invited me here, I can do whatever. So that's the, uh, yeah, so in, I'm not advocating this today, obviously, but in like a kind of trans-historical model of the Sharia, yeah, in the pre-modern period, um, the situation in which anyone could be enslaved would be non-Muslims outside the abode of Islam taken by 
a Muslim state in war. Okay. Uh, criminal law, we talked about this already. And of course, the, uh, the, the, the Haq Amma, the, or the state, also is in charge of the, the forum of the law. Where does the law, where does adjudication happen? Where are disputes resolved? They're resolved by the Qadi. Who appoints the Qadi? Is the Qadi appointed by, you know, election? We say, who would be a good Qadi? Sufyan. No. The, what, the, the Wali, the governor or the ruler, appoints the Qadi. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Islam. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, a couple of important things to keep in mind here. The notion of qada. Qada is the judging of the judge. Seems like a silly phrase, but the qada is what the qadi does. Then there's sulta. Sulta is authority. It's like political authority, power. The ruler has political power. He puts the qadi in the position of qada, of doing judging. Now, two things, sort of kind of going along with this are two types of uh, bodies of law or types of authority. The one that goes to the qadi in the mahkamat al-qadi, or the, the court, the judge's court, is fiqh. Fiqh is what we all know about, right? So you learn about fiqh al-salah, and fiqh al-siyam, and the fiqh of marriage, and the fiqh of divorce, and the fiqh of Islamic finance, and the fiqh of this and that. So this is all the law, the law of God as uh, elaborated by Muslim jurists. It's not elaborated by the government. Right? Government doesn't have a role in this. This is elaborated by Muslim scholars. And, and if you're a Maliki judge, you have the Maliki fiqh. If you're a Shafi judge, you have the Shafi fiqh. I'm a Qadi. I've been put in my position by the ruler. And my job now is to rule according to the madhab of fiqh that I deal with. And it deals with marriage and divorce and contracts and inheritance and waqfs and uh, uh, things like that. There's another thing. It's the um, siyasa. Siyasa is political authority, and there's certain areas of the law that are dealt with by the ruler. But let me, before that, I want to explain something important as well, which is that the ruler does, can have certain role, certain role in fiqh and in the qadi's activities. Now this starts out, it does, this really starts to get more pronounced in the 1000s and 1100s, and gets very pronounced after the Mongol invasions of the 1200s, and it starts to like become extremely pronounced in the period of the Ottoman Empire and even in the Mughal Empire as well. That's that the ruler actually can get involved a little bit in the work of the judge. How is that? Uh, let's say I put, uh, what's your name? Shiroz. Shiroz? Yep. That's an interesting name. Shiroz? Yep. Okay. I, put, I make Shiroz the judge. Now, Shiroz is a Hanafi judge, right? Because you're a Daisy. <laughs> right? Where are you from? Where's your family from? Um, Pakistan. Well, okay, that's fair enough. Okay, so you're a Hanafi judge. But guess what? In the Hanafi school, you have more than one ruling on this topic, on this one issue. So in the Hanafi school, Imam Abu Hanifa says, a woman does not need the permission of her wali to get married. And Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani and Abu Yusuf say, the woman does need. No, sorry, uh, it's only Shaybani who says the woman needs, does not, uh, a woman needs the permission of her wali. So I have two options. I can actually say, Shiroz, I want you to go with option two. We are going to use Shaybani's ruling and uh, we're going to require women to get the permission of her wali. So you can, uh, now you're required to basically follow my 
instruction. So that's something that, this, by the way, really starts to get pronounced after the, the Mongol invasions, uh, after the 1200s of the Common Era. The second thing that uh, rulers can do is what's called taqid al-mubah, and you, the sister in the red or pink scarf, this is going to be interesting for you because uh, this is especially important in issues of slavery and abolishment of slavery. Taqid al-mubah means the restricting the permissible. In some way, this is very mundane expression of siyasa authority. So if I say, uh, okay, everybody is going to drive on the left side of the road. Did God say, I, permit, I forbid you from driving on the right side of the road? But we're not allowed. We know from the Quran. Why do you make forbidden what is allowed by God? We can't say that something's haram that God has not made haram, right? Did God make driving on the left side, of the, right side of the road haram? No, wait. What side do you drive on? Yes, the left side of the so, no, this is a, the, the, the ruler is actually restricting what is permissible to us. Why? Because it's, it's for the maslaha of the community. But it's not, the ruler isn't saying it's evil or it's wrong or it's haram in the eyes of God for you to drive on the left side of the road. It's just this is like I'm making this decision because it's better for the, the community's well-being. And by the way, this is ultimately the argument that's really used to, to talk about re- abolition of slavery in the Islamic world as well. That you're not required to have slaves. You're not even necessarily recommended to have slaves. If it's in the best interest of the Muslim community, or it fulfills the aim of the Sharia, namely God's desire for freedom, that you can restrict this permissible thing and make it Ill- illegal. It's not necessarily haram in the sense of being like haram eternal in the eyes of God, but it's illegal in the eyes of the government. There's another type of uh, authority, another type of court, besides the Qadi court, and it's, these are essentially siyasa courts. These are courts where the ruler is using his or the state is using its political authority. And these are two types generally in Islamic civilization. Uh, by the way, sometimes they end up uh, blending into one another. Sometimes they're separate, sometimes they blend into one another, but the, you can see these two functions separately. One is called jara'im. Jara'im is plural of jarima. Jarima means crime. These are criminal courts. So these are what we were talking about earlier with me and my conflict with Sufyan. If things get ugly, if people start attacking one another, assaulting one another, committing murder, the, uh, this case is probably not going to be tried in the Qadi court. It's going to be tried in the jara'im court. Now, that doesn't mean that there's some ignorant... Sultan, you know, who just got done with a nice, you know, fermented horse, drink, horse milk drinking party or something like that, who's sitting there over the, overseeing the case. No, there's a Qadi there, there's Muftis there, there's Ulama there, but it's a different, uh, different um, uh, setting. And there's actually different authority involved. And some of the rules that govern the Qadi generally don't apply in this situation. And the second one, the... the this is also where you have the notion of tazir, or the judge's discretionary punishment coming into account, into play. The second type of court is the madhalim court. Madhalim court is an appeals court. So this is people who feel like they've been wronged by a government official, who feel like they're, the judge who had their case in another situation was unfair, who feel like they've been somehow wronged in general. They can go to the madhalim court and complain about... Uh, uh, have, you know, seek justice from the ruler. Why would uh, these two different types of courts exist? Because they have different uh, aims of what they aim to protect. So the, in the Qadi court in Islamic civilization and in the Sharia, 
The colonies actually have a lot of restrictions on them. They have a lot of restrictions on them. One main one that you see commonly, it's not, not in all the schools of law, but it's very frequent, is that the ruler cannot rule, or sorry, the judge cannot rule on what they know. What does that mean? Okay, imagine uh, I see, I'm walking down the street, uh, Shiroz, that's your name, right? Shiroz comes to me and says, Judge, uh, I was uh, robbed of my tie by uh, Sufyan. He beat, took me in an alley, smacked me around, he took my tie. Okay? And, but I don't have any witnesses. I swear this happened, I don't have any witnesses. Uh, yeah, Sufyan, did this happen? No, no, it didn't happen. Sorry, Shiroz. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But, this is crazy. I happened to be walking by that very alley, and I actually saw this happen. I know this happened. Can I say, Sufyan, I saw this happen. I'm sorry. You have to, you know, give him back the tie, and I'm going to punish you with, you know, putting you in prison for a day or something like that. Can I do that? No, because, but why? It doesn't make any sense. Why can't I do justice? Why can't I give Shiroz justice? Well, I'm, what do you mean? I am, I'm not above the law here. I am the law, as Sylvester Stallone said in Judge Dredd. <laughs> Why? Okay, because imagine this. Imagine I like uh, Shiroz's tie. Right? So I'm like, look, okay, Sufyan, this is what I'm going to do. You tell me that he stole your tie, and I'm going to say that I saw it happen, and then I'm going to get the tie later on. It's a great way for correct, corrupt judges to abuse their authority or for, for people who are vulnerable uh, defendants to lose their rights. So it's actually protecting the rights of the defendants, the rights of the accused. Now, what's a feature of the Siasa courts is that, that that's one of the things that doesn't apply in the Siasa court. In the Siasa court, the judge can rule by what they know, and a lot of other restrictions are also removed. Why? Because in this situation, we've, we've assumed that this person is coming to this court because, like especially the Madhalam court, because they've been wronged and they're really upset about it. So now we're actually going to shift the protection away from protecting the defendant to now trying to protect the interests of the guy who's complaining and make sure that he gets justice. So in this situation, you're, sort of, you're kind of like tilting the playing field the other direction. Instead of being stacked against the accuser, it's now stacked against the defendant. And you could say, well, you know, injustice could happen here too. But the idea is, first of all, of course injustice can happen. We're only human beings. We don't know everything. Only God knows everything. And ultimately, at the, in the end, in the afterlife, people will be punished for the wrongs they've done. So even if we can't give people justice in this life, uh, they'll get justice in the afterlife. But at least in this situation, we're going to kind of invert the, the field a little bit and give, uh, try to get justice for the person who's saying that they've been wronged. Why? Because it's the objective of the ruler. One of the jobs of the ruler is ultimately to make sure that the hukuk al-ibad, the rights of their serv the servants of God, are protected. All right. How much more time do I have? Okay, that's great. So uh, I'll, let's just kind of look at the functions of Sharia courts. I made this. This is a pre-modern period. You have... You can see blue color means that the, the rules are set by the Qur'an, the Sunnah, the fiqh that's derived from the Qur'an, the Sunnah. Uh, orange is discretion of the, the, the Qadi. And red is discretion of the ruler. It's the, the siyasa, right? Okay, so there we go. What's happening here? 
sorry. Now, um, I don't have enough time to talk about this, but you can read about it in my article on Hadood called Stoning and Handcutting at yakleaninstitute.org. This is what my previous talk was about. Uh, Hadood crimes, their evidentiary ba bar is so high that, in effect, their punishments never actually happen. Uh, why do you have rules? Why do you have punishments that are set that, never, that almost never actually happen? Because the, um, the aim is to deter people. In pre-modern states, you don't have police forces that can go and like walk the beat or investigate crimes. States don't have that manpower. They don't have the administrative capacity. So basically, in order to deter people, you have to have very high punishments, very severe punishments. But you don't actually want to implement those punishments. So you have like ways out of the punishment that we, where you make it very hard to prove that the crime actually occurred. This is the same in uh, actually British law prior to the, 19, to the late 19th century and in other legal systems as well. You can even see this in kind of ancient Near Eastern law. So most of the things that, you know, uh, theft or accusations of zina and things like that, they're almost never going to be dealt with in Hadood level. They're going to be dealt with in what's called tazir, which is the discretionary punishment of the judge. And sometimes this tazir is set by the medheb, or sometimes it's set by the state. So in the case of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire actually had these things called yasakhnames, which are books that set the different punishments for, different, for crime. I talked about some of these before. Some of them are interesting. You steal a chicken, you have to walk around with that chicken like around your neck, get paraded through the village. Like, ha, look who stole the chicken, right? You have, if you are a, uh, oh, I'll just use that one as an example, right? Um, and actually, I'll bring this up with my mom as well, because... One of the things that is a, a very typical Tazir punishment, especially in the Ottoman period, is what's called bastinado. And this is where you hit someone's bottom of their feet with a, with a reed. And I remember once we were, my mom and I were cleaning out this closet in my sister's room, and we found this like kind of long reed. It looked like a really thin, long back scratcher or something. And my mom was like, oh, that looks like a bastinado reed. And I said, I was like, what's that? She said, oh, you hit bottom of the feet with that. I said, that's, that's pathetic. This wouldn't hurt at all. She said, okay, try it out. So I lay back on the bed, and she just whacked me once on the bottom of my feet. It really hurt a lot. I was like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. So uh, that's Tazir punishment. So other things that are, so the, the Hudud are set by the Quran and the Sunnah mainly, but they generally don't apply, get, get applied. That goes to Tazir punishment. Other things that, what are the, the and I actually made these sort of in, try to make them at scale. So the, the major thing that a Qadi court would deal with is things like marriage and divorce. Just like uh, modern courts, the major thing they deal with are like family law issues, marriage, divorce, inheritance, alkaf or to endowment disputes or setting up endowments, dissolving endowments, dealing with people talking about endowments, regulating endowments. And then mu'amalat, transactions, buying, selling, property, things like that. So these are the, the bulk of even today in a modern court, these are going to be the bulk of the things that, that a legal system handles. Uh, they also can have tazir elements. That's why I have a little arrow going into there. Because if, let's say, you know, Sufyan and I have this dispute over the tie sale or the scarf sale, but Sufyan has been really awful. Like he's, it's not just he's violated the contract. I mean, he's just been extremely unethical. The judge might also put tazir punishment in there just to correct him against this kind of conduct. Um, Qasas is retaliatory punishment. 
for injury or murder. Now, this is a great example of like kind of private law becoming public law. Because if you have a case of murder, the, the sort of structural default of that is that it's an eye for an eye. Right? So if I, if I murder somebody else, the punishment is I get murdered. But that doesn't really happen, right? So it's not like you have the situation where somebody comes, okay, you get to, judge says, you get to murder that guy now. That doesn't really happen. What happens is uh, it's um, uh, either the government who executes the, some head executioner or very much more often payment of the dia, payment of the blood money. And this all happens under the rubric of the, either the, the Qadi or the, the, the Jura'im court. Another thing I have in here, sorry, which is really the discretion of the ruler is what's called ifsad fil ard. And this is one of the hudud punishments for the crime of hiraba. Hiraba means like banditry or really publicly awful, persistent crime. You know, like someone going on a crime spree or a gang that's going and murdering people and stealing and stuff. This is causing corruption or, or ruining the world, ruining, ruining the world. It's based on the Quranic phrase of Aladina you Allah wa Rasulahu wa So this is the, the, the punishment comes from the ruler and it can be up to like execution. The problem is, and this is where you see definitely abuse in Islamic history and you see it, abu- you see it today in countries, let's say like Saudi Arabia, is... Um, that it can also be kind of political punishment. So how do you, you know, I was just talking to some guy today who was saying in Egypt, his friend had just gotten arrested. You know, this guy's done nothing wrong. Why did he get arrested? Oh, he's trying to do, overthrow the regime. Like, really? It's overthrowing the regime through writing, you know, like some kind of book on childcare or something like that. This is, so you can, this is very easy for a government to manipulate and use for its own purposes. Um, these things under here are held in the court of the ulama qadis. I use ulama qadis because where are the qadis drawn from? They're, they're from the ulama, right? Sometimes they're not always the best ulama, but they're ulama anyway. And these are the political courts are the ulama and qadis, but also they're, they're kind of working under the rubric of the ruler or the rubric of the government. Um, and finally, there's another source, which is the Madalim Tribunal, which is overseen by ulama qadis under the rubric of the Zultan, and that's where you have like appeals issues would go to the Madalim court. Does everybody understand this? Okay. Um, yes, so this is... That's in the pre-modern period. Let me think how... I want to see if this animation works or not. Yes, it does. Okay, good. So what, this, what I'm going to describe is the process of, that the Sharia goes through essentially in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. And a, a great place, you can see this actually happening under British rule in British India on, with what's called Anglo-Mohammedan law. Uh, but you could, that's sort of imposed by a kind of colonial Western power. But you can see it happen very indigenously or kind of indigenously with in the Ottoman Empire and in the Ottoman provinces that are kind of semi-autonomous like Egypt. 
uh, in the 19th century, especially from essentially the 1830s until the, the, the fall, of the, the end of the empire in 1920, 1922, 1924. So what, what happens? So you have the, a lot of stuff that was previously under the Qadi court is going to get sucked up under the Siasa court. It's basically moving things from one court into another court. These are all part of the Sharia. It's very, everything I had before up there on the, the screen was Sharia. Everybody understand? So this, this thing here is Sharia. Everything here is Sharia. Everything here is 100% legitimate. No one's, there's no non-Sharia court here. This is all Sharia. What happens now is how you kind of, where you put the pieces, under whose authority those pieces fall. So what happens by the time you get to like, let's say the, Oh, the, let's say the year 1910 in the Ottoman Empire, is a lot of stuff has been moved onto, into the Siasa tribunals. In the Ottoman Empire, this, this begins in the 1860s and 70s with the development of something called the Nizamiya Court. I should have written this down. Let me see if I can use this little pen function and use like a chicken scratch. Like Banksy. I'm going to do cursive. I'm going to move to cursive, people. <laughs> Nizamiya Court. Um, now, the Nizamiya Court was staffed also by ulama qadis who were trained in the same schools as the, the people who are still working in this blue family law court. So it's still part of the Sharia. Um, but there's a couple of differences. There's a couple of differences. So first of all, the government, instead of having, let's say, the books of the Hanafi Medheb, like the Durr wal Ghurar of Mullah Khusro, which would be like the main book of law in the Hanafi, the, the Ottoman Empire would use from the Hanafi school, they, they, they took the same contents and they, in things like legal procedure, uh, property, um, uh, contracts, things like that, they turned it into what's called the Majalla, Majalla al Ahkam al Adliya, which was promulgated roughly 1870. So it's like Hanafi law, but it's now formatted in a very simple way where there's just one rule for everything. There's not, you know, Abu Yusuf said this and Shaybani said that, Abu Hanif said just one rule and it's like numbered, you know, uh, uh, 40.3. So it's, it's like a lot easier for judges to use. You don't have to be super educated. And this is a process of codification, which the Ottoman Empire is going through at the same time as European countries are going through it. So it's actually Ottoman judges and Ottoman administrators saying, how do, we, how do we be modern? Not how do we be European, but how do we be modern and take advantage of new technologies to be more effective rulers? So one thing is the Majella, And then later they do the same thing with the new criminal code in 1860. And in 1917, they issue a new family law code, which again, is just taking Sharia content, mostly Hanafi law, and just formatting, in, formatting it in a way that's a lot easier to access and to use. All right. Um, there's another thing that happens is something called Takhayur has uh, started. Takhayur means choosing. In one sense, uh, this is not a big deal. So if you have the Majella, uh, which is all based on Hanafi law, so it's legal procedure, how the judge actually runs the court, how you have witnesses, how people make their claims, uh, contracts, uh, torts, and things like that. Um, 
Hanafi school has lots of options for any one topic, any one point of law. But you're going to pick one. Remember, it's the ruler's right to do that. So this is all Sharia legitimate. But now, so that's all Hanafi school. For all the Ottomans, you're like, okay. Hanafis, everybody's all right. South Asians are all fine as well, except for our Kairullah brothers who are like, what about the Shafi school? But something else starts happening. It's a little bit more tricky. In the 1917 family law that the Ottoman Empire passes, there's actually some points that are taken from outside the Hanafi school. In fact, on one issue, they go outside all the medhebs to scholars who predated the medheb formations. But in theory, this is all still part of the Sharia. So, I mean, the Maliki school and the Shafi school are just as much part of the Sharia as the Hanafi school, right? And the opinion of, of uh, Ibn Shubrama or Alayth bin Sa'ad or Sufyan al-Thawri or Hassan al-Basri, these early figures, they were Muslims, they were big Muslim scholars, right? Yes, okay. So if I want to take their opinion here, again, this is still, you're still picking from within the broad pot of the Sharia. Um... Things like ta'zir, how you deal with murdering and political crimes and stuff. Uh, again, it's sort of getting codified, and uh, instead of having multiple options, you have one option. Another thing that happens is hudud goes bye-bye. Now, th this is interesting. In the, in the Ottoman case, it never actually... This is something that happens after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But if you look at Ottoman law up until the end of the empire... Hadud are still there. So if you look at the Ottoman Criminal Code of 1860, it says like the rights of God and the Hadud and Qasas, these are all present. This code is just going to deal with ta'zir punishments. But remember, do Hadud punishments ever happen? No, they're sort of irrelevant. So it would be like they're just sitting there at the top and the reality of what actually happens in the law is everything after that. But they're still there. Symbolically, the government is still committed to the establishing the, 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 the hudud of God. And in that, that's not a betrayal, because the hudud just are essentially never implemented. Not because um, there's some scheme to not implement them, because it's so difficult to ever have a HUD crime actually punished, that they're essentially irrelevant. They're basically there as a, a statement of identity, not a, a real legal reality. Okay, um, then what happens as time goes on, the number of things in, that are under the court of the ulama qadi starts to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink, and more and more is taken over by the, well, that's not what I wanted. Okay, go back, yes. Not by those guys. More and more is taken over by the, uh, the other courts. So in 1955, in Egypt, for example, they get rid of the, Qadi uh, courts altogether. And now, even the family law courts in Egypt, by that time, only kind of family law, marriage, divorce, inheritance was handled by ulama Qadis. All of that has moved under kind of government siyasa family courts. They're still applying a modified mixture of Hanafi law and Maliki law. So, for example, in Egypt, um, if you say to somebody, if a husband says to his wife, you're divorced, and he's joking, or he's drunk, or he's angry, that doesn't count as a divorce, even though in Hanafi law that, that would count. But they mixed and they took the Maliki law there and said it's not a valid divorce. So it's like a mixture of different... By the way, um, 
Oh, is that a kid crying? I'm sorry to hear that. So, the, like, uh, I have a question. In Hanafi law or Maliki law, if, you, if someone has a child, and then that child has a child, but the, middle, the child dies. So I, I have a child and a grandchild. Now my child dies, and then I die. Does my grandchild inherit from me in the Hanafi school or the Maliki school? Because it's like, there's like a, you have to have a continuity to the person. It's like the river, the stream has been broken. In the Hanbali school, you have a required uh, wasiya. So I have to do, I have a requirement to give a, a portion to that grandchild. Even though there's not like official inheritance happening, I have a requirement to give part of my wasiya to that grandchild. So that's taken in pretty much, I think, almost every Muslim country, or at least every Middle Eastern country, they have that they take that from the Hanbali school. So you, you, they kind of make mix and match from different schools of law, doing tachayr, to get a, what people consider to be a just, modern family code. Okay, so that's that kind of process of modernization that happens in the Sharia. I'm happy to answer your questions now, or take your comments. Yes? Uh, no, there's not. Um, and jury is an interesting idea. Do you guys know where the jury comes from? It does? Yeah, that's that weird thing. No, it doesn't come from the mountain, but I don't think so. It comes from uh, Dane. I think it comes from Dane uh, Viking law, like Dane law. It's, they're oath givers, right? So they, originally they're there to like swear oaths uh, in support of somebody. And then they become basically like investigators. So in old English law, like 1100s, 1200s, they're actually like, uh, they almost like investigate the, the situation or they judge what happened. But they're not, they're almost like involved in the trial, like the judge. And then eventually, you, by the time you get to like 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, there's a notion of the jury as the kind of passive fact finder who is, who is told things by witnesses. Before that, like the juries are almost like witnesses themselves. They're like involved in the whole case. Um, but uh, I think in England and in, in Great Britain, juries are relatively uncommon, correct? It's only for major crimes. Yeah. So Americans still have, like, the majority of trials would be, like, jury trials. Uh, but that's a, but it's actually really problematic because juries are a lot of times idiots, right? I mean, you, you know, you want a jury of your peers? Really? Like, you know, my peers are, so, and it, there's been some interesting surveys about, like, so in civil law cases in the United States, you, the jury is supposed to decide based on what the preponderance of evidence is. So the, the real rule of preponderance of evidence is, like, is it, 50, 50, is it more than 50% likely that this thing happened? But then they, do, they did uh, surveys of juries, you know, after the fact, what, what does the preponderance of evidence mean? And you look at the results, and it's so alarming because a huge, like a large percentage of people said, preponderance of evidence means I have to ponder the evidence. I have to really consider it. So there are even basic things like what the preponderance evidence means. Forget other jury instructions that are given by the judge. It might even be more complicated. Uh, they're, they're not understanding it. So there's, like I think, a real question about whether juries are effective means uh, to get justice. Yes? Yeah, so hudud punishments, there's, there's 
it's impossible to get, it's almost impossible to meet the evidentiary bar uh, because the, and we see this, a good example of this with the Quran, right? So the, the Quran gives you punishment of 100 lashes for sexual infraction, but then um, in the same text gives you a requirement to have four witnesses. And then if you don't have four witnesses, you get punished 80 lashes. So the Quran itself sets up very severe punishment, but then impossibly high bar evidence to meet, and then a punishment for not meeting that bar. So it creates a situation I talked about earlier, which is a law that is essentially not meant to be implemented, not because um, it's sort of self-defeating, because the purpose of the law is to deter, to instill a sense of the severity of that crime and to deter the citizenry from committing that crime, because pre-modern states don't have the, don't have the logistical capacity to invest, police and investigate and prevent crimes. Yeah, I did, but I can't remember what it is. And you have to read my paper on, um, I mean, I could probably, I think it was, yeah, but what was it? It was, let's say, deterrence value, D. If you want, so this is, this is like a general formula that criminal law scholars would use. If you, this is not Muslims, this is just general criminal law scholars. So we can have a debate about how you deter, best deter crime. Do you best deter crime by educating kids to be nice people? Or do you best deter crime by scaring people about the punishments they might get? A general rule human beings have had is that you deter people from committing crimes by scaring them with the punishments that they're going to get. So D, deterrence value, is not that. Uh, P, which is probability of getting caught, times uh, S, which is severity of punishment. Right. Now, you can imagine if you have a, if you want D of this size, but you're in a pre-modern state. By pre-modern, I mean essentially pre-mid-19th century, before police forces, before things like the telegraph, before automobiles, before taxation systems that are actually able to raise huge amounts of revenue because people have addresses and postal notes, and you can go and find where they live and punish them if they don't pay their taxes, right? Before all that, the chances of getting caught are really small. So that's your P. If I want to get a D of that size with a tiny P, how big does S have to be? Yeah, you have to have like a big S. So severity of punishment has to be big in order to get the, the D. Now, you don't actually intend to have those punishments carried out. And I mentioned this before in my last talk. Sorry for those, for those of you who were hearing it again. But this is, you can see this very clearly in the history of English criminal law, which is that punishments, the number of punishments that are death penalty punishments, the number of crimes that are death penalty punishments in England until the year, until the 1820s are, you know, a huge number, some 200 crimes. Some of them just really silly crimes that are punishable by death. Did people actually get executed for those? Not really. Because the juries would find ways to, let's say, okay, you're, you stole a fish from a fish pond. That's death penalty offense, no joke. But, you know, okay, well, you know, it wasn't really a fish you took, it was a sort of a minnow, uh, so we're going to give you a smaller punishment. So there's the same kind of legal uh, dodges or legal ruses that you see in the Hadood tradition are actually used in the main elements of criminal law in English law well until the 19th century. Uh, this is only in the case of Hadood law for Islamic law. It's not the case for things like murder and theft. Yes, uh, other questions? Oh, these are, you have the written questions. Yes. 
Uh, yeah. By the way, if you guys want to read this about this, I wrote a whole article called "Stoning and Handcutting" on YachinInstitute.org. But uh, the idea that Muslim, the God commands the, the Prophet is commands Muslims to Muslim judges to ward off the hadood punishments from the believers by looking for ambiguities, by looking for ways out. So unlike things like Sufyan and my tie sale dispute. Uh, uh, Feroz and my, just, you know, the issue of him getting beaten up in an alley or something like that. Uh, here, the judge is supposed to try and do justice. In the case of Hadood crimes, you look for any possible way out of the HUD crime. And it doesn't mean the person isn't going to get punished. It just means that they're going to get punished by the Tazir punishment, not the HUD punishment. 